Section 15 of How They Succeeded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How They Succeeded by Orison Sweat Martin. Section 15. A Fascinating Story by General Lew Wallace. In his study, a curiously shaped building lighted from the top and combining in equal portions the Byzantine, Romanesque, and Doric styles of architecture, the gray-haired author of Ben-Hur, surrounded by his pictures, books, and military trophies, is spending in serene and comfortable retirement the evening of his life. As I sat beside him the other day, and listened to the recital of his earlier struggles and later achievements, I could not help contrasting his dignified bearing, careful expression, and gentle demeanor with another occasion in his life, when, as a vigorous, black-haired young military officer in the spring of 1861, he appeared, with flashing eye and uplifted sword, at the head of his regiment, the gallant and historic 11th Indiana Volunteers. General Wallace never repels a visitor, and his greeting is cordial and ingenuous. If I could say anything to stimulate or encourage the young men of today, he said, I would gladly do so, but I fear that the story of my early days would be of very little interest or value to others. So far as school education is concerned, it may be truthfully said that I had but little, if any, and if, in spite of that deficiency, I ever arrived at proficiency, I reached it, I presume, as Topsy attained her stature, just growed into it. A Boyhood of Wasted Opportunities were you denied early school advantages? I asked. Not in the least. On the contrary, I had most abundant opportunity in that respect. My father was a lawyer, enjoying a lucrative practice in Brookville, Indiana, a small town which bears the distinction of having given to the world more prominent men than any other place in the Hoosier state. Not long after my birth, he was elected lieutenant governor, and finally, governor of the state. He, himself, was an educated man having been graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point and having served as instructor in mathematics there. He was not only an educated man, but a man of advanced ideas generally, as shown by the fact that he failed of re-election to Congress in 1840, because, as a member of the Committee on Commerce, he gave the casting vote in favor of an appropriation to develop Morse's magnetic telegraph. Of course, he believed in the value and tried to impress upon me the necessity of a thorough school training, but in the face of all the solicitude and encouragement which an indulgent father could waste on an unappreciative son, I remained vexatiously indifferent. I presume I was like some man in history. It was Lincoln, I believe, who said that his father taught him to work, but he never quite succeeded in teaching him to love it. My father sent me to school and regularly paid tuition, for in those days there were no free schools. But, much to my discredit, he failed to secure anything like regular attendance at recitations or even a decent attempt to master my lessons at any time. In fact, much of the time that should have been given to school was spent in fishing, hunting, and roaming through the woods. His boyhood love for history and literature. But were you thus indifferent to all forms of education? No, my case was not quite so hopeless as that, I did not desert the school entirely, but my attendance was so provokingly irregular and my indifference so supreme, I wonder now that I was tolerated at all. But I had one mainstay. 
I loved to read. I was a most inordinate reader. In some lines of literature, especially history and kinds of fiction, my appetite was insatiate. And many a day, while my companions were clustered together in the old red brick schoolhouse, struggling with their problems in fractions or percentage, I was carefully hidden in the woods nearby, lying upon my elbows, munching on an apple, and reveling in the beauties of Plutarch, Byron, or Goldsmith. Did you not attend college or the higher grade of schools? Yes, for a brief period. My brother was a student in Wabash College, here in Crawfordsville, and hither I also was sent. But within six weeks I had tired of the routine, was satiated with discipline, and made my exit from the institution. I shall never forget what my father did when I returned home. He called me into his office, and reaching into one of the pigeonholes above his desk, withdrew therefrom a package of papers neatly folded and tied with the conventional red tape. He was a very systematic man, due, perhaps, to his West Point training, and these papers proved to be the receipts for my tuition, which he had carefully preserved. He called off the items and asked me to add them together. The total, I confess, staggered me. A father's fruitful warning. That sum, my son, he said with a tone of regret in his voice, represents what I have expended in these many years past to provide you with a good education. How successful I have been, you know better than anyone else. After mature reflection, I have come to the conclusion that I have done for you in that direction all that can reasonably be expected of any parent, and I have, therefore, called you in to tell you that you have now reached an age when you must take up the lines yourself. If you have failed to profit by the advantages with which I have tried so hard to surround you, the responsibility must be yours. I shall not upbraid you for your neglect, but rather pity you for the indifference which you have shown to the golden opportunities you have, through my indulgence, been enabled to enjoy. A manhood of splendid effort. What effect does admonition have on you? Did it awaken or arouse you? It aroused me most assuredly. It set me to thinking as nothing before had done. The next day, I set out with a determination to accomplish something for myself. My father's injunction rang in my ears. New responsibilities rested on my shoulders, as I was, for the first time in my life, my own master. I felt that I must get work on my own account. After much effort, I finally obtained employment from the man with whom I had passed so many afternoons strolling up and down the little streams in the neighborhood, trying to fish. He was the county clerk, and he hired me to copy what was known as the complete record of one of the courts. I worked for months in a dingy, half-lighted room, receiving for my pay something like ten cents per a hundred words. The tedious and the regularity of the work was a splendid drill for me, and taught me the virtue of persistence as one of the avenues of success. It was at this time I began to realize the deficiency in my education, especially as I had an ambition to become a lawyer. Being deficient in both mathematics and grammar, I was forced to study evenings. Of course, the latter was a very exacting study, after a full day's hard work. But I was made to realize that the time I had spent with such lavish prodigality could not be recovered, and that I must extract every possible good out of the golden moments then flying by all too fast. Self-education by reading and literary composition. Had you a distinct literary ambition at that time? Well, I had always had a sort of literary bent or inclination. I read all the literature of the day, besides the standard authors, and finally began to devote my odd moments to a book of my own, a tale based on the days of the Crusades. 
When completed, it covered about 350 pages and bore the rather high-sounding title, The Man at Arms. I read a good portion of it before a literary society to which I belonged. The members applauded it, and I was frequently urged to have it published. The Mexican War soon followed, however, and I took the manuscript with me when I enlisted. But before the close of my service, it was lost, and my production, therefore, never reached the public eye. But did not the approval which the book received from the few persons who read it encourage you to continue writing? Full fifty years have elapsed since then, and it is, therefore, rather difficult at this late day to recall just how such things affected me. I suppose I was encouraged thereby, for, in due course of time, another book which turned out to be The Fair God, my first book to reach the public, began to shape itself in my mind. The composition of this work was not, as the theatrical people would say, a continuous performance, for there were many and singular interruptions, and it would be safe to say that months, and in one case, years, intervened between certain chapters. A few years after the war, I finished the composition, strung the chapters into a continuous narrative, leveled up the uneven places, and started east with the manuscript. A letter from Whitelaw Reed, then editor of the New York Tribune, introduced me to the head of one of the leading publishing houses in Boston. There, I was kindly received and delivered my manuscript, which was referred to a professional reader, to determine its literary and also, I presume, its commercial value. It would be neither a new nor an interesting story to acquaint the public with the degree of anxious suspense that pervaded my mind when I withdrew to await the reader's judgment. Every other writer has, I assume, at one time or another, undergone much the same experience. It was not long until I learned from the publisher that the reader reported in favor of my production. Publications soon followed, and for the first time, in a literary sense, I found myself before the public, and my book before the critics. The Origin of Ben-Hur How long after this did Ben-Hur appear, and what led you to write it? I began Ben-Hur about 1876, and was published in 1880. The purpose, at first, was a short serial for one of the magazines, descriptive of the visit of the wise men to Jerusalem as mentioned in the first two verses of the second chapter of Matthew. It will be recognized in book first of the work as now published. For certain reasons, however, the serial idea was abandoned, and the narrative, instead of ending with the birth of the Savior, expanded into a more pretentious novel and only ended with the death scene on Calvary. The last ten chapters were written in the old adobe palace at Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I was serving as a governor. It is difficult to answer the questions, what led me to write the book, or why I chose a piece of fiction which used Christ as its leading character. In explanation, it is proper to state that I had reached an age in life when men usually begin to study themselves with reference to their fellow men, and reflect on the good they may have done in the world. Up to that time, never having read the Bible, I knew nothing about sacred history, and, in matters of a religious nature, although I was not in every respect an infidel, I was persistently and notoriously indifferent. I did not know, and therefore did not care. I resolved to begin the study of the good book in earnest. Influence of the story of the Christ upon the author. I was in quest of knowledge, but I had no faith to sustain, no creed to bolster up. The result was that the whole field of religious and biblical history opened up before me, and my vision not being clouded by previously formed opinions, I was enabled to survey it without the aid of lenses. I believe I was thorough and persistent. I know I was conscientious in my search for the truth. 
I weighed, I analyzed, I counted and compared. The evolution from conjecture into knowledge through opinion and belief was gradual but irresistible, and at length I stood firmly and defiantly on the solid rock. Upward of 700,000 copies of Ben-Hur have been published, and it has been translated into all languages from French to Arabic. But, whether it has ever influenced the mind of a single reader or not, I am sure its conception and preparation, if it has done nothing more, have convinced its author of the divinity of the lowly Nazarene who walked and talked with God. End of section 15